Today on the Read a Mimi Do It show. Ever since becoming a matchmaker, and I've had a million different jobs, I'm, I'm literally doing 10 different things right now. There has been a common through line. There has been a one thing. And that one thing is helping to educate, right? So this is my love. And this is what I've noticed is my one thing, is 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 helping to educate. And it doesn't sound sexy, but I try to do it in the most sexy way possible, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm on a television show, but really what I do on this television show is I'm coaching celebrities around their dating life. And I'm sharing how they can literally live a better life, right, in whole. Um, I write, I'm a columnist for USA Today. I'm literally sharing on how entrepreneurs and thought leaders can actually either grow their business or, or, or grow their brands, right? Um, if it is at, if it's, you know, coaching through a mastermind program, if it is an event, uh, if it is, you know, public speaking, if it's, uh, you know, it, it consulting, right? Everything that I'm doing, it's about, you know, it's, it's, it's got this kind of through line with education, with the exception of one of my latest businesses, Rita. Because of Rita, I got on the news. Because of Rita, I had 15 speaking engagements last year. Because of Rita, I've become a six-figure business owner. Because, because, of, Rita, because of Rita, I've doubled my revenue by doubling my clients. I'm Rita, business strategist, speaker, and success coach. Also known as the gal who went on 35 dates in 35 days and blogged all about it. And this is the Rita Mimi Do It Show, where every week I bring you the real information about what it takes to go all in on your dreams so that you can build a profitable business and live a positive life. Some weeks I'll have a guest and others it'll be just you and me, like we're out on my deck sharing a bottle of wine. The conversation, yeah, it'll be that real. normally do a setup for an episode, but my interview with Paul Brunson was incredible and full of so many insights, it was impossible to hold anything back from you. So his interview has been split into two episodes. Can a book really change your entire life? On this episode, episode two, you'll learn about the book that gave Paul Brunson a perfect blueprint for success, and how exactly it took him from college flunky to television celebrity. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to be here with you today, and I am really excited to introduce you to my guest, Paul Brunson. Now, I could sit here and I could list all of Paul's credentials and what he does, but I really think that the most important thing is who Paul is. And when I think of a word that I would assign to you, Paul, I think that the word that I would give you is completely unconventional. I know that's two words, but completely (laughs) unconventional, unconventional being the most important word of that. It's like, what, what do you think when you say that? Do you view yourself as somebody who's unconventional? You know, I I love, well, first, thank you for having me. Of course. This is, this is awesome. I. Uh, seven, eight years ago, came up with an idea for a conference that I wanted to do. Um, and I couldn't come up with the name, but unconventional was something I wrote down as 
a word that I wanted in the title. And so the f- fact that you are that you've used that is is very meaningful, very oh. meaningful. So yes, I, I I love that word. Oh, love it. Yeah, I lo- I like an idea of a conference for unconventional people. Well, you know, <laughs> what ma- so. What made me want to talk to you, people talk about doing so many things. People are always full of ideas. I don't, I don't think ideas are a scarcity for the most part. People have these, these things that they want to do and these dreams and these visions and so many things that they want to execute on. But I will say that I think you are really the only guy I know who backs it all up with like action, full out action. <laughs> I think you're the only person I know who does that because you've done some really epic stuff. And like my my audience, right, who who maybe aren't familiar with you, right? Paul was like basically like this is a Cliff Notes version, investment baker to matchmaker to like living in Turkey. And I don't know if I'm getting this in the right order to like working with Oprah. And I think it all started with you like flunking high school, right? Is that, is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you want to take it all the way back, yes. and you had the right—that was the right order. Oh wow! Shows, okay. Yeah, chronological order. Very powerful. You had okay. it. So nothing like, and then I will say this: like, is it we're going to get to this? But I want to leave this as a teaser. Right? It's not just the trajectory of his business and working life that's unconventional. His private life is super unconventional too. And I'm just going to let that linger while people just go, what is she talking about? Like, what is Paul's private life? Like, cause we're going to talk about, but you really are, you're not the status quo. You're not mainstream and a lot of how you live in and execute your life. And we're going to talk more about the trajectory and things like that. But were you, were you always like that? Were you always someone who just was that kid that was just different or did that happen at a certain point? Do you even remember? Do you know? It's it's so weird that we're talking about this because I, I promise you about maybe an hour and change ago when I came back uh, to our flat here, I'm talking to you from London, right? Uh, I was talking to my wife about this dilemma I have with the TV show that I'm filming out here where I was saying, God, you know, I feel so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not the typical, uh, kind of television presenter here. And I, and I feel a bit off because I'm not doing all the typical things that I know they would want me to do. And my wife was like, you know, all the things that make you different, those are all your best qualities, right? Well, those are all the things that make you special. So it's, it's weird because, uh, when I think about it, I, I think, uh, you know, to, to earliest days, uh, you know, going back to say high school, um, I believe that I always wanted to embrace all the things that made me different, but instead I played the role of the guy that I thought everybody would like, you know, and it was this internal battle that didn't express itself until many years actually after graduating college. But, you know, in, in high school, I think I was doing all the things that uh, I thought people wanted me to do, and, and therefore it, it, it caused lots of lots of difficulty for me. You know, my grades were terrible in high school. I was getting into all kinds of trouble. My counselors thought, you know, I, like college was the last thing that I should focus on. Instead, I should, you know, do. Uh, I think plumber actually was the number one job that was recommended to me. Um, so I had a really tough time in in high school. Uh, I think I had a tough time in college as well, especially early on in, in college. So it was, 
I was kicked out actually of college. <laughs> so you had the, you said you were kicked out of somewhere, Paul, right? So I was. <laughs> I knew you flunked I was, something. I knew, <laughs> I knew you get kicked out of something. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was kicked, so my first year, my GPA uh, was so low. I was, I was put on probation for a year. And, um, you know, so it was one of those where I definitely spent, I feel like my teens and early 20s were just uh, crappy. Um, you know, and I think the reason why is because I was this constant struggle of what, what does the world want me to be? You know, what does the world want me to aspire to become? And what do I truly want to become? Yeah, that's a pretty heavy question for like a high school, a high school kid thinking about even college. But was your did your family play a role in that or was that all self-imposed on you? Yeah, you, you know, I mean, I don't I I, uh, I, I think I, my parents, you know, put me in a great position to to win. So I think a, a lot of it was was on me. But at the same time, you know, uh, you, you know, it was at, at so one, I'm a black male. Uh, my father was the first in his family to go to college. So the fact that I could possibly go to college was a very, very big thing, right? In my family. And so the idea was you go to college, you get a degree. My father was an engineer. So it's, I get some degree in, in something within the sciences. And then I go pursue that for, uh, 30, 40 years. Right. And that is success. And so that's kind of how my blueprint was shaped early on. And that's what I thought was the right thing for me to do. So any deviation from that, right, whether it be not go to college or uh, maybe enter the arts, right, any deviation of that, uh, I at least felt as if that was that was the wrong thing for me to do. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure too. It, it reminds me of the story where there, there's like they sell these at Costco, these big inflatable rockets, and you can you use a hand pump and you pump up the rocket with like a hundred hand pumps, right, to put all of this pressure into the rocket. And then when you unplug the the hand pump from the rocket, it just all that pressure is released, and then it just takes off, right? It's just soaring and it's flying. And I think that when you are feeling pressure for, and you and I both share a common past that we're going to get into, into in terms of, you know, you're kind of doing it again now, but the date coaching. And I think it happens there as well as in business or in life in general, when you're feeling a lot of pressure, you, you, it's hard to soar. It's hard to take off. You have to release all of that. So what was the moment where you were, I, I get it, right? Like my family sees me going to college and all of this is going to happen and, and it could happen. And I don't know if I want it to. And so you're just kind of like stuck or just scared of, you know, going after, but what changed that for you? Because I'm talking to you while you're in London, filming a TV show, right? Over in the UK, right? And there's a lot in between, including working for Oprah, which we're going to talk about later too. But how did you go from the kid that was going to be a plumber or at least told to be a plumber and, you know, getting kicked out of college to taking action in a, in a different direction? Was there a certain moment that you were just, I have to claim my life or tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, what's interesting is that uh, I think a lot of people, when they reflect back upon their life and they look for that inflection moment, you know, it's never an exact moment. It's always a series of events. 
But for me, I can pinpoint it precisely to the exact moment. And that was when I was, so I was kicked out of school, right? I'm out, but, and all of these moments always, you know, it, it, it touches upon dating, you know? So I was dating this beautiful woman uh, who now happens to be my wife. And uh, she was, so she was not kicked out of school. So yeah, she, you know, she and I went to the, to the same college, right? So she's in, in, in this bookstore and she is looking for, you know, books for class. And I could care less about being in the bookstore. I just knew that we were going to the movie theaters after. And I saw as she, you know, she, she, you know, went deep into the store. I saw one particular book that just screamed at me. You know, it was, it had this black man who was smiling on the cover. He had a suit on, very expensive suit, you know, very expensive watch. He has a cigar and the title was just as bold as his presentation. And that was, why should white guys have all the fun? Mm. And I had never seen a book that had that bold of a title uh, someone who looked like this on 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 the cover, you have to reason or, or realize that the reason why this stood out to me in particular is because I, I used to be obsessed with uh, the Forbes uh, list of the wealthiest people in the world, and I literally used to look through the magazine to see if there was anyone like me because I thought, oh my god, if there's no one black on this list, I I, I can never I can never land on this list, you know. Um, but so to, to see this, this person with this presentation, it was very powerful to me. So I picked up the book and I flipped through a couple pages and my wife, well, then my girlfriend, she bought the book for me. She said, oh, you look like you're, you're interested in this. Let me buy it. I read the book in three days, which was major because at that point, so I was, uh, 18, 19 years old at that time. I had never read a book cover to cover. Never. In my entire life, wow, okay. uh, never, never. I mean, maybe going back to you know a three-page you know book that I read when I was you know six or five years old, but never read uh, you know a meaty chapter book cover to cover. Just never had interest in it. Uh, but that book I devoured, and that book single-handedly changed my life because it was the story of Reginald Lewis, who became at the time of his death the wealthiest African American. And he was able to battle through, uh, you know, a troubled childhood, uh, you know, uh, problems in college. He was the first person ever to be admitted to Harvard Law without taking the LSAT. Um, his, his, he, you know, went on to, to build this, uh, this, you know, billion dollar buyout fund. But, but it was so powerful because it gave me the blueprint to what I, considered to be success, you know, uh, being disciplined, waking up early, having mantras, uh, you know, training your mind, training your body, surrounding yourself with the right people, right? Giving back. And I literally started emulating everything that I saw in this book. I started reading the Wall Street Journal. I put mantras on my wall. I joined the Big Brothers, Big Sisters. I started working out diligently. You know, I started reading, uh, uh, you know, frequently. And literally, within the span of reading that book, fast forward within three years, right? Three years, I was graduating from school with honors. 
uh, having uh, received a distinguished award for my you know community service with Big Brothers Big Sisters, you know I had I had literally changed my life, and I point it back to to that book. So I know moments like that, but I also know that there are people listening who are going, whatever, man, I've read a book before and I was really inspired by the book and I tried to do some of this stuff in the book, but right. But it's not like I hit it out of the park or it's just magically like I just did it and I had no problems doing it and I was doing everything differently suddenly. Like I can't imagine it was that, I mean, maybe it was, but it was that clean cut, like, oh, there are these things. And now I'm just going to do a mantra every day. And, oh, there's this thing. And now I'm just going to, you, did you struggle at all with that? What did you do to keep in action? Once you decided this is the new life that I want to have, I want to step into this. How did you then get, get you know, change habits, re, rewrite habits of a lifetime to allow you to cultivate the discipline or to have the patience or to take the action and stay in motion? Yeah. So, so this is a good question. And, and, and I'm sure there, there are many saying, yeah, you know, whatever, but I would rebut by saying two things. One is perhaps, you know, you're not hungry enough. And the, and when I say hungry enough is I'm not talking about hungry enough for hungry for, uh, a win, right? Or hungry for, you know, quote unquote success. I'm talking about you are so down on your luck that you have no other option, yeah. right? You know, when you, when you are, are dealing with someone who is completely broken, then at that point, literally the option is, is, you know, you crawl in the corner and you die or you do something about it. Right. So that was one I was in a, in, in what I would call an extreme broken place. That's one. Secondly, is that I, you know, when I, when I, when I see the, the blueprint, it's, it's funny, like you read all these, you know, books now, Charles Duhigg's The Power of Habit or, you know, James Clear, uh, Atomic Habit. And what's funny is that what they're doing is they're just distilling what people have been telling us for decades, like Reginald Lewis said, you know, was talking about this in the 90s. And that is, is the power of these very small habits that end up being the pillars to much larger habits, right? So for example, uh, Reginald Lewis would talk about, okay, you wake up early, you make your bed, you look at, at your mantra, you repeat the mantra. It seems very simple. It's, 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 it's something that is actionable by 99.99999% of the people uh, on this call. But or on this, you know, listening to the, to the podcast, but would everyone do it? Oh, some people, maybe they say, oh, I, I don't believe in that stuff. Or some people say, oh, you know, I, I give it a try, but I don't know if I'll consistently do it. But doing that simple, wake up, make up your bed, look at the mantra, right? What those are doing is it's built, it's, it's creating these micro habits that allow you to then go on and accomplish something a little bit larger, then a little bit larger, then a little bit larger, you know? And it's one of these where I, I you know, I, I didn't read the book and then the, the next day consistently for the, for, for the, you know, for the entirety of my life, make up my bed. It's funny, I'm staring at my bed right now that's not made. <laughs> um, but what I did do is I did implement new things 
And when you start doing new things, different things, you get different results. And once I saw those different results and I liked those results, I said, let me do some more of these new things. And slowly what ended up happening is slowly I'm working on reading, working on you know, schoolwork, my mind begins to change. You know, I'm working on uh, giving my time, Big Brothers, Big Sisters program. I become much, a much more kind person. You know, um, I'm working, working out, right? I physically am becoming stronger. I'm, I have more stamina now throughout the day, right? Slowly, these, thing, these things are happening. And then when you fast forward a year or two years or three years, you then begin to get the compound interest of that, right? That's where you get the major dividends is when you have been consistently doing these things. And, and I think for me, what's happened over now, you know, um, God, nearly 20 years uh, from, from graduating from, from college is that I've seen the compound interest of, of these things. And so now I'm willing to, do things even more differently, right? To be even more unconventional, right? To take even more risk because I know that 10, 15, 20 years, there's going to be compound interest. And it's to the point now where I'm no longer looking for compound interest for me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm now making decisions that I believe will impact my children and my children's children, who my children are five and eight. So hopefully they don't have any children yet. Uh, but, but that, those are, those are the decisions that I'm, that, that I'm making now. And, and the reason why I, I may do things unconventionally and different. So I, th- I think it's, it's, it, it takes time. It takes I don't time. even know what else you could, you could do. <laughs> what else you could do? I mean, I'm sure there's, I can't wait to see everything that, because we're, we haven't even dug into some of the unconventional stuff that you've, you've done. And what I'll say is on paper, your life seems very conventional, right? It's kind of like, okay, like I'm married and I have two kids and, and I, you know, I, I am home to read with my children and I put them to sleep and I, and we're going to get into, you know, exactly what is completely different about your, your, your life. So people know what I'm talking about, but I'm curious, one question, do you remember what your first mantra was when you put it up? Oh man, I think it was get up, make up your bed, Tell mom I love you, and be to bed on time. Ah. You know, it, and, and and just just you know what I find you know what I find fascinating about that is the focus of um, the consist- consistency of waking up at a certain time, going to sleep at a certain time, and how those two things, if you do those consistently, it regulates your day, um, and then. When it, when your day becomes regulated, you can actually uh, create more structure around it, and then you can actually become more efficient, right? So I think I think it was something along those lines. But I, I took it right out of his book. Okay, okay, yep. You just took it, put it up there, looked at it. Right? Do you have a mantra right now? Ah, uh, man, fifty. Yeah. What, what's know, one that just pops 50. to your head though? Like if I were to say, just share a mantra with us right now. Uh, one that's very important to me is every day show my wife that I love her and I appreciate her. So in in my mind, it's every day show her, I love her, appreciate her. And every day I'm doing it, whether it's a text 
you know, to her, whether it's something that I write to her, whether it's something that I tell her, you know, I, I've, I've, I, I've understood where happiness is derived, where my happiness is derived from. And she's a key source <laughs> to that. And our relationship is a key source to that. You know, so I invest an immense amount of time in that. And so I have mantras around that, mantras around the boys, you know, mantras around work ethic. Um, yeah. Men. Yeah. No, I love it. That's good. That's good. Right. And so I want to to focus on, on your family, but before we do that, I kind of do want to take people through some of the things that you had, you have done and then dig into one or two of them. So you were an investment banker for how long? Yeah. Investment banker for four years. And I bounced around. There was uh, different banks, uh, but ultimately the bank, uh, yeah, I guess Bank of America is still around. Ultimately, it's Bank of America was what really swallowed us all up. Uh, and my focus was actually banks. <laughs> so I, I was an investment banker that focused on regional banks. Um, and it was... It, it was it was a game changing experience, and and I think the reason why is because it was uh, they were highly sought after positions. I wasn't supposed to get a position like that. And by the way, I, I literally sent out applications for my wife may know the exact number. It could be fifty or more positions, investment banking positions. Um, I. I was only brought in for three interviews, you know, three different uh, investment banks, and I was only given one offer. And everyone at the investment bank, you know, it was because it's such a sought after position. You know, it was, you know, someone who went to uh, a higher tiered school that I went than than what I went to, or someone who obviously, you know, knew someone uh, at the firm. So it was a position that my family and friends really celebrated. And I was, I was like the king. It was like, oh my God, Paul, Paul got the job at the investment bank, right? You know, and so when I, you know, pulled up and told them I was leaving. Right, right. <laughs> they, I was like, they, when you're like, I'm out of here. <laughs> so what yeah. made you do that? Yeah. I mean, here's a job that you beat out people who you thought were surely more better, like better suited and were qualified for it. So you worked it and then you were, you were out of there and on to something that I think is amazing, but what, why? Yeah. Three, three, three things. One is it was a very toxic work environment. Uh, I'll never forget that my boss was having uh, his first child. So his wife was pregnant and he chose to come in to work opposed to go to the hospital to bear witness and support his wife. Uh, you know, bear witness for to his child being born, and that was celebrated. Wow! And so, yeah, and and so that was one. The second is that uh, I started coming up with business ideas, concepts, and then third is I started. That was when I started to really embrace all of my kind of quirks and awkwardness, and that's when I I started to get confidence, uh, mindset started to shift and started to believe that, um, wow, if I got here, then I could get over there. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, so the, those, those three things 
you know, triangulated and I was gone. So where did you go? Started my own thing. So I left and I uh, raised some money. And when I say some money, it was $100,000, uh, which, you know, to some people is a lot of money. To some people is like, oh, that's all you raised was 100000 But um, I was super proud that I was able to do that. And I then created my first kind of full-fledged company. Uh, I hired one, one of my coworkers from the investment bank. Uh, we were in Richmond, Virginia at the time. And then when we raised the money, our attorneys uh, that we secured were in Northern Virginia. So that's what got me to the DC area is I, I moved to Northern Virginia. We, you know, and we, we, we ran this company and it was, it was another one of those incredible experiences. I was, you know, um, God, what was I, you know, 20, I don't know, three, you know, r- running, uh, running a company that, had raised money. So the valuation of our company on paper was a couple million dollars. Uh, you know, we had, it was two of us working full time. We had another four people working part time. We were in essence, a software development company. So we were developing software for animal shelters and then t- kind of uh, extracting the data and selling the data to, 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 to pet food manufacturers and that kind of thing. You know, so if you adopted an animal at a shelter, uh, the reason why you started getting uh, mailings from IAMS is because we sold them your data. <laughs> because of you. You started that exactly. whole thing. All right. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. But did it feel so you're 23, you're really running a company. You want to, I don't even, I know that so many people struggle now and it's more common than it was then to raise money for their business. Did it ever feel to you? that moment of I am running a business or was it just kind of like one action into the next action into the next action? Did you ever truly feel like the owner of a corporation, the owner of a company, or did you still feel like you were just that young kid that was hustling and going from one thing to another, to another? No. Yeah. And I still feel that today. Yeah. And the, and, 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 and honest to God, the only time that I ever reflect on wow, like, look at all this crazy stuff is when I'm doing interviews like this and I get to actually go back and reflect, but otherwise it's just, we're on to the next, let's keep going. Keep pushing, you know? Uh, So no, I I never stopped to reflect. I wish I I did a little bit because it, what we were doing was really unique and I, and I I never stopped. And, And maybe that's actually, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this now for the first time. Perhaps that was a really good thing, not to pigeonhole it as something unique, because instead the way I looked at it is, oh, this is just something that I'm here to do. What's really interesting about that is there's a fine line, I think, between like savoring your success and really celebrating your progress so that you know what you've done to get to where you are, but then becoming too complacent and going, wow, look at where I've gotten. Like, this is pretty good, right? Like I could just stay here so that what you said about maybe it was good that I didn't stop to think because I was just looking forward and not, you know, just not pausing long enough to get comfortable. Right. Good point. Good point. Well, thank you. (laughs) 
thank you. Sorry to, you know, I was just like, that is so true. But I tell people all the time, like, well, there's this great story. I think you'll appreciate the story. So, you know, um, uh, Jennifer uh, uh, Lawrence, the actress from The Hunger Games, she was talking to Brie Larson, who played Captain Marvel in the most recent Captain Marvel movie. And there was a time where before Captain Marvel, Brie Larson won I think it was like an Academy or an Oscar, one of those, you know, awards. And she called up Jennifer Lawrence and and Jennifer was like, congratulations. And she's like, yeah, but like, I still feel like an imposter. Like, when do, when does it feel real? When, when will I feel like I've made it? And Jennifer Lawrence is like, you're never going to feel, you're never going to feel like you've ever made it. Like that just doesn't, that doesn't come, that doesn't happen. And it makes me wonder how many people out there are feeling like they're failing simply because they don't feel like they've ever made it. But then how do you also then celebrate now and celebrate where you are now while still striving for more? So how do you kind of, how do you do that in a way that your kids won't feel, I guess there's that difference between being inspired and feeling inferior, right? Feeling like there's more that I can have and also feeling like you still have enough at the same time. How do you cultivate that in you and in your family? Yeah. Well, well, you know, so, I mean, I've reached a point where uh, I am, and this is, uh, this is as a result of having some very close people, including my best friend, uh, you know, pass away all within the last few years. And so uh, something that I've done substantially different in my life is life to me is uh, succession of creating memories, right? Um, and those memories are created through moments. And a lot of those moments, uh, the, the reason why those moments stand out and really kind of make it to memories is because they're unique moments. So uh, my, I'm and my wife, were very methodical about creating these moments, you know? And so uh, we spend a lot of time uh, making moments with all of the people that we care most about. That is it. So everything that we do revolves around creating moments. Truth be told, the reason, the only reason why, uh, you know, now I've been living in London on and off for the last year is to create moments. You know, the fact that I'm on a hit TV show is great, but it was secondary to being here for the moments. You know, what led us here was not the show. It was the fact that we could do some incredible things out here, you know, travel the world from this, from, you know, from, from this destination. That's, those are the, those are the factors that I use when I'm taking on projects. Um, is, is, is it something that will help to, you know, uh, allow my family and I and the people I love to, 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 to make incredible moments and therefore have, have phenomenal memories. You know, I think that's so fascinating. So I was talking to another uh, friend of mine who is also just a, a huge serial entrepreneur in the Washington DC area. And he was talking about all of his different business ventures. And I was asking him a question. He said, you know, Rita, I know none of these make sense. Like nothing seems to go together on paper at all. But here's the thing. 
I just like creating experiences for people. So he owns like a resort and he owns a sound company and he owns, you know, some, some theaters and he owns, and he said, everything that I do, I ask, is this going to help create an experience, like a life-changing, impactful experience. He's like, so a sound company, their equipment at shows and at concerts, and that's life-changing for the people who go to hear it. He's like, that's the one thing. And if it doesn't fit that thing, then I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And I think sometimes people get held up with, I read the book, the one thing, and I'm only supposed to do the one thing. And I know I can't have 18 streams of income when I'm just starting, or I'm never going to build 18 streams very well at all. I'm only going to do them kind of half-ass, right? But like, I think people try to pigeonhole it too much. And if you can really pinpoint that one thing, like yours is to create moments, his was to create experiences. Some, you know, are to empower people. Some are, then it, like the world opens up for you. And I would say, do you think it's true that almost everything you've done since leaving, you know, even the company that you were just talking about, about the pet data, which we're going to talk to, like it's been governed by that kind of philosophy of, I just want to step into a, to a moment and a moment that matters. Well, so I 1000% agree with you that the one thing shouldn't be a microscopic one thing. It should be a broader one thing that, that everyone defines for themselves. For me, the moments and my one thing are, I view them as slightly different. Okay. So I view my one thing. So, so one is when I was doing the, 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 the pet uh, company, that wasn't a passion business. I was just hustling to try to make money. I mean, that, and, and, and my biggest lesson learned from that is you know, you, you should you should do things that you either love or you believe you can fall in love, uh, right? Doing and 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 that was just I was just completely hustling, but it wasn't until I became a matchmaker, right? Uh, so in two thousand and nine, and ever since becoming a matchmaker, and I've had a million different jobs. I'm I'm literally doing ten different things right now. There has been a common through line. There has been a one thing, and that one thing is helping to educate, right? So this is my love, and this is what I've noticed is my one thing, is, is, is helping to educate. And it doesn't sound sexy, but I try to do it in the most sexy way possible, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm on a television show, but really what I do on this television show is I'm coaching celebrities around their dating life. And I'm sharing how they can literally live a better life, right, in whole. Um, I write, I'm a columnist for USA Today. I'm literally sharing on how entrepreneurs and thought leaders can actually either grow their business or, or, or grow their brands, right? Um, if it is at, if it's, you know, coaching through a mastermind program, if it is an event, uh, if it is, you know, public speaking, if it's, uh, you know, it, it consulting, right? Everything that I'm doing, it's about, you know, it's, it's, it's got this kind of through line with education, with the exception of one of my latest businesses, Rita. Which I don't know is, if you know about this. I don't know. You know this, I mean, the latest business was a school. Were, were the schools. That's the latest thing that I had heard about. So what is this? Oh, yeah. So, yes, we're, we're still doing the schools. Uh, and that's that's a that's a nonprofit. 
Um, but the, the, the kind of the latest, and this was about four or five months ago, we invested in the only woman-owned coffee bean seedling farm in Jamaica. Uh, she's actually the only coffee bean farmer, but she runs a coffee bean seedling and, and um, a farm. And what's what's so powerful about this is she sells her seedlings to all of the major coffee bean farms. So without her, the coffee bean industry in Jamaica wouldn't be what it is, which amazing. is considered, yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, and so we we are her first investor. And we have um, already secured a deal to sell coffee uh, to seven Starbucks. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's one of these where I'm, I absolutely love it. And it's, it stretches uh, beyond, uh, you know, the educating. But in essence, it is educating because this is a farmer. Her name is Dorette Houghton, who never had a partner, her family, they were farmers, right? She probably has, I think, the equivalent of a fifth grade, sixth grade U.S. education. She's been a farmer her entire life. She's in her mid-30s. She never thought she would be able to grow a business. So this is, this is, yeah, clearly, you know, I'm going to be able to, 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 to monetize from this and, or capitalize from the situation. But at the same time, she her 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 children's children will now live a, a different life as a result of this you know so yeah it's it's really cool really cool so so that, that one is, really- is 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 an outlier yeah so so people know right just in case so like we're talking about a lot of different stuff here, but Paul was investment baker into matchmaking, but not only being a matchmaker, he built the number one matchmaking agency in the in the world, I believe. And then you sold you sold it. I think when everybody was thinking that you were just crazy to sell it because it was at the yeah. top top of the game, right? So how did yeah. you like what was your thought process around that? How did you trust your gut to go, this is the time? This is the time to sell it, or was it even a gut decision? Was it more? I've just had my my time with this, and it just happens to be at the top that I'm selling yeah. the matchmaking agency. That that's a good question. It it was, I, you know, I think it was a combination of of all of those. You know, I'll give you the, the inside story on that one. Um, is you know, we we had been running the agency for several years. It was myself, my wife, then we, you know, uh, uh, started bringing on a, a, a staff and. Uh, Steve Harvey, of all people, um, their folks had reached out to us and they were interested. He had just done a deal with, uh, with match.com. Uh, and so he had an online component and he was interested in an offline component. And we actually went back and forth for several months over, uh, you know, what a structure, what a deal could look like, um, you know, the valuation of it, et cetera. And ultimately, I realized that if I was, I was thinking to myself, this is incredible. You know, here's someone who wants to, to, to buy this business. And the reason why he's interested is because the matchmaking industry felt to be, um, you know, uh, felt to be at an all-time high. 
you know, and, and why? Because, you know, Tinder was really, you know, rolling out big and there's stories every day in the press. And, and, and the idea was that online, as online uh, activity increases, that offline activity in, in dating would, would increase. And to me, and this is why it's important to be a student of history, is to me, this felt very similar to what was happening in the markets in kind of um, early 2000 when I raised my money for the, for the pet business. Um, and so the same thing was happening. Um, and, and so I realized that it was a bubble and that the bubble would eventually burst and that you can basically get your highest valuation in the bubble, right? So market-wise, it was the right time. I had validation of, of interest from someone reaching out to me. Uh, and then also, I was starting all of these other businesses that I thought I could spend more time on. So it was a combination of those things that led me to know it was the right time to, to sell. I love that because there's so much talk out there about, well, just trust your gut, trust your instinct, trust your gut. And it's true. It's important to trust your gut. No, but it's also important to kind of make an educated choice around your gut sometimes because our gut sometimes just doesn't want to have us do something. It just wants to keep us safe and comfortable and it will just tell us not to go in a certain direction for no particular reason. I think the focus has been so much on just follow your heart and follow your gut. And I think that some has been left out of, but also kind of study the market and understand your business because you're a business owner and you need to make sure that you're making an educated gut choice, right? Yes. Yes. This is, this is very, very important. Very important. Yeah. Because it can go, it can go in the opposite direction too, where you could just study the market, study history, study whatever, and then you're going to completely go against your gut and that's not going to work out in your favor. Usually either when you do something that's out of alignment with your values or what you're feeling like you should be, you should be doing. So I really love that you share that because that really is a hot topic right now out at the conferences I'm going is that fine line between, you know, just trust your gut and go with your gut and then also have some strategy and maybe a little bit of data to like back up what you're, what you're doing. So let's talk a little bit about two things that I do want to mention that you did because they're both super fascinating to me. One, you moved to Turkey. I think you, you like mentored <laughs> yeah. with a millionaire, right? And you just kind of like hung out in Turkey for a while. And then the other was you worked with Oprah. So how did, how did these things come about because these are not opportunities that get presented to people just every day where it's like, do you want to move to Turkey and mentor with me? Cool. And Oprah still hasn't called me to ask if I'm going to help her with anything. So how did these opportunities yep. come across your path? All right. So the, the first one that you mentioned uh, was the time that I spent with, uh, his name is Enver Ugel. Uh, and it's funny. I was literally uh, speaking with, uh, um, you know, someone who's who's still with him uh, just two days ago. So how I got the opportunity with Enver Ugel is after... So uh, the first business that I talked about, the, uh, the pet business, we sold that company. And after we sold that company, um, I got married and I didn't have a job and didn't know what to do and ended up getting a job at Kaplan Test Prep. And I became uh, the youngest and the first black 
director for what's called a Kaplan Supercenter. So I, I worked out of Washington, D.C. And the reason why I underscore that, youngest and first black, is because I had a team of, I don't know, let's say it was maybe about uh, 30 full-time employees and um, there are hundreds of teachers. And we had an international division and our international division, the woman who ran that division, who reported to me, uh, was probably 20 years older than I was. Um, and uh, she just she just looked like I reported to her. <laughs> and one day we had a, a visit from a delegation from Turkey. It was massive. It was, you know, 20 people, then an additional, you know, 10 press. There was news cameras. There was, you know, reporters, that kind of thing. They came in, they toured our, our, our D.C. facility, and then we brought them into the auditorium. And my international director was the one who, who toured them. And she started, you know, giving basically an overview of, of the center. And so um, someone ran into my office and said, Paul, you know, can you come help? Because, you know, she's not able to, to answer all the questions. So I walk in and, um, and, and, and this Turkish delegation is firing questions, mad questions at her. And then she would defer some of the questions to me. And this one gentleman that's in the Turkish delegation said, why, why are you asking your, your staffer, right? A guy who works for you. Why are you asking him the, the, the questions? You should know this. And she said, no, 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 no. That, that guy there, he's my boss. That's Paul. And so they said, well, put him up in the front of the room. So they put me up in the front of the room and they started firing these questions at me. And after about 10 questions, the man says, would you like to come work for me in Turkey? Just like that. And I said, this guy's crazy. Uh, anyone who's going to say something like that, you know, after 10 questions, he's crazy. And then I said, you know, no, thank you. Uh, thank you. very. I, I appreciate it. I'm honored by, by that offer, but I'm, I'm quite happy here. Just got married, that kind of thing. And he says, well, one day I believe you're going to work for me. Um, and he then, then they left kind of abruptly and his assistant hands me, uh, her, her, her business card and says, we're having a dinner tonight in DC at this restaurant called Meze. Uh, we, we want you to come, please come. And I said, I don't know if I, if I no, no, they said, please come. So long story short is at that time I, I had, I had, ne I had never met anyone from Turkey. I didn't know where Turkey was on the map. <laughs> um, but I ended up going to dinner. I was intrigued. And when I sat down at dinner, they ordered one dish from every entree on the menu. And I fell in love. It was almost like they, they put me in this trance. But what I realized what they were doing is they were assessing me. By day, they were assessing how I ran my center. By asking me questions, they were assessing how knowledgeable I was in the industry. In the evening, they were assessing my social skills and how was I able to interact because the ambassador from Turkey was there, right? There are many dignitaries that were there. They actually sat me next to the ambassador of Turkey. They were assessing, assessing, assessing. And then they, at the end of the night, Right before they jumped into you know their, their their motorcade, they said, "If you ever want a job in Turkey, we're, we we would love to have you work with us." And so, long story short, 
over the next year, I then started to develop an idea for a business, right? So I never went and decided to, that I would go to, you know, go to Turkey at that point. I just, just continued working at Kaplan, but I developed an idea for a business. And I pitched this idea. It was, a, it was an idea to provide test preparation to poor youth, you know, people who couldn't afford test preparation but desperately needed SAT or ACT uh, tutoring. I proposed an idea to Kaplan to start a nonprofit. They denied me. I proposed an idea to one of our competitors. They denied me. I, I even went to Washington Post. At that time, Don Graham uh, was the owner of Kaplan Test Prep, and he was also the owner of the Washington Post. Um, and I even pitched Don Graham. I mean, that's how heavy I went. And I always got the runaround, uh, and I didn't know what to do. And I thought, I'm going to pitch this guy in Turkey. Mm-hmm. He wants me to work for him so bad. Let me pitch this idea. So I said, "Hey, I, I have an idea." They said, we'll, "We'll, we'll, you know, we'll get you some tickets. Come on out." I went to Turkey by myself. Within 24 hours of being there, there was a bombing, the HSBC bombings. Uh, over 60 people died in the bombings. And what I realized is that, and I stayed. I stayed. Uh, and a lot of people, even to this day, say, Paul, man, I mean, kind of like, what you stayed. like." But going back to that point earlier, we were talking about hungry. I was hungry. And I knew this was a potential oppor- a game changer opportunity. Uh, and I stayed. I stayed for a week. And at the end of the week, I proposed the idea. We shook hands. And I flew back and I quit my job that Monday. Well, I know who my next guest on my podcast should be. And you think I'm going to say the millionaire. I'm going to say your wife because your wife <laughs> has, been, has been super supportive from the moment you were kicked out of school, right? And then she's still right. in the picture all the way to like, oh, I'm just going to quit this wonderful, cushy investment banking job. I got, oh, hey, honey, we just got married. I'm going to move to Turkey now. Okay. <laughs> right. And yet you're still married. <laughs> so I yes. think Jill will be my, you know, she'll be my next oh, guest yes. on, uh, yes. on my She's show. the MVP. <laughs> <laughs> She's the MVP. And what, one thing too, just to note is that at that time he was worth, so when I, when I started working with him, uh, he was worth a few hundred million dollars. Uh, but then he became a billionaire while working for him and he's a billionaire now. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, and you, you still keep yeah. in touch with him. I mean, I, I imagine he's still, you left that, but it, there was no animosity or you didn't just say I'm out of I'm out of here. That was always going to kind of be the the case, right? They knew that it was for a limited amount of time that you were going to be there. I imagine, or oh, did they assume you were going to move to Turkey forever? Oh yeah. Oh no, 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 no. I mean, I, so uh, I af- after that, uh, I moved. I was there in uh, Istanbul for six months, uh, but then I worked uh, for him for five years in the United States, and I okay. managed all of their investments in the U.S. Uh, but no, when I left, I, I left on great terms. And to this day, he's appointed me to the board of trustees uh, for his school. Uh, I do quite a bit of business still um, in Turkey. Uh, my number one investor for the schools that are built in Jamaica is Mr. Ugel. Uh, so uh, he is a mentor and very good friend of mine. So what would... If you had to, from that story, from the moment he walked into Kaplan 
to the time that you know, now he's an investor in some of your companies and some of, of your endeavors and your businesses. Like what's one main lesson takeaway that if you had to stand in front of a room full of people and say, this is, this is the lesson you should take away from this story, what would the lesson be? Know your, and I don't, I don't curse. So know your stuff Um, that, and, 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 and confidently convey it. Uh, I, I think what put me on his radar immediately was the fact that I wasn't thrown off by the fact that they were pestering me with, with questions. Uh, and they were asking questions about the industry and they were asking questions about competitors and they were asking questions about our financials. And, and I was competently answering those questions. And he became very impressed that I was able to, to, to do that. Uh, and then the fa- and then the second is that a willingness to step outside of your comfort zone, but still carry your presence outside of your comfort zone. Uh, that night with at dinner at, at Meze with the ambassador, that was, I, I, now when I reflect back, that was it. That was, that was essentially my interview, you know? Yeah. Um, that's a great, that's and, a great interview tip, yeah. by the way. I mean, I, the whole, how do I build my team and how do I bring people on, right? To look at them in their office setting, to bring them out to a social setting, to evaluate them in a real time situation, because I, I think that's so important. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, even one quick comment about that night, uh, and I've seen this and I feel terrible when people are, you know, trying to uh, impress, you know, other people is, uh, you know, they were trying to ply me with with wine Mm. and and drinks. Um, And, you know, I hit uh, I, I don't know what the number was, you know, two glasses of wine or whatever. And I just said, no, thank you. And that was also something they were looking for. They, you know. (laughs) <laughs> they're bringing on someone to manage their money. They didn't want them to be a, a drunk, you know? Um, and I noticed in social settings uh, that people tend to just endeavor, you know, and, and continue and continue and continue and continue. And so, um, so, I, so that was, that was the, uh, that was the lesson. And then just to almost connect it to what we were talking about, you know, earlier, and that is this whole notion of owning your quirks and your awkwardness and, and, and your vulnerabilities. You know, I was very transparent. No, I don't know where Turkey is on the map, but yet I'm still open to, you know, I've never had Turkish food. I'm open to trying it. Right. Um, you know, so at, in, in one vein, I'm, I'm conveying my ignorance, right. Uh, you know, I should know where Turkey is on the map. Uh, but, but I'm, I'm also saying, you know, I don't, but I'm willing to, to learn. You know, you show me, I'm willing to learn. So I think these are very important. So important in business, so important in dating, so important. And, and I think there's a lot of pressure and it's probably, you could chase, trace it down through society. There's pressure to feel like you have to know, right? That something's wrong with you. If you don't know the answer that you're less than if you don't know how to do something and you have to ask for help. And I see this a lot in my entrepreneur clients too in in the the way that they're interacting with they don't want to lead with but I don't I don't know that but I'm willing to to figure that out. I don't know that but yeah. I will watch 18 videos and figure out how to do that for you and then I will do that for you and I will I will learn that skill for you and I think so many people are scared to say 
I don't know that, or I don't know how, because they think it's going to pull the bottom out, you know, like collapse the bottom, yeah. pull the rug out from underneath them. Um, so, Great point. Great point, yeah. Rita. Yeah. How, so I, there are just a few things I want to touch on before we end, but I just need to know exactly in detail how you met Oprah and what her phone number is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll give you one of those answers. Okay. I'll okay. give you one of those. Next time on the Rita Mimi Do It show. I needed to, you know, tell the world that I'm a matchmaker and I didn't know how to do it. And once again, my wife, the MVP, uh, she and my best friend, Andre Smith, um, they suggested that I create a video series and use that as my way to, you know, unveil to the world that I was a matchmaker. And keep in mind, this is, you know, this is 2009, you know, so YouTube is still just kind of bubbling. Um, and uh, so long story short, is cr- I created this, this, this uh, web series called The Modern Day Match- Matchmaker, uh, The Modern Day Matchmaker. And you can go to YouTube, you can look at it now. It never, never got massive views. Um, but we consistently would put the modern day matchmaker out every week, high quality, you know, eight, nine, ten minutes. I mean, it was it was it was costing a fortune to put these out. We were literally we had literally used all of our savings to do this video series. Um, and uh, and and this is it sounds like a joke, but this is the honest to God truth is we would put the video out. We would get about nine, ten or eleven views over a week and I knew my mother was watching at least, you know, seven, nine times. So it was one of those where I knew literally it was like my mom, the one person who was accidentally clicking on the video and then like one or two other people watching. Uh, And then after uh, weeks and weeks and weeks of putting those out, uh, I got a message from the Oprah Winfrey studio Hey, before you go, thank you for listening to my show. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your podcasts and leave a review. It'll only take you a second, but it will help other people discover the Rita Mimi Do It show. And my goal is to share this business-boosting and life-changing content with as many people as possible. In fact, because I value your time so much, Every month, one reviewer will win a free coaching call with me. So if you want to get laser focused and go all in on the results that you most want in your business, then leave a review now. And then head on over to readamamedoit.com where you can find the show notes from today's episode.